So good to see you. If you uh, happen to have your copy of God's Word on you today, open up to John 4, 19 to 23. That's our passage this morning. John 4, 19 to 23. It's a, it's a familiar passage. We know it well. You know, see what we can mine out of it this morning, what, what God has to teach us about worship from his word today. Um, here we are. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Believe me, woman, and a time, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. Teach us today a little more about what authentic, true worship is about. Teach us how to worship you better. Teach us, Lord, how to be worshipers. Help me this morning to speak the truth and prevent my lips from speaking what's false. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm very grateful and excited to be uh, speaking to you this morning to have this opportunity. Um, yeah, I'm the guy that usually is standing over here with a guitar hanging around his neck. I'm Jim Davis. I'm a um, member of the pastoral team. Um, I'm not a trained theologian, but I am going to speak to you out of God's word today. And I, I asked uh, Pastor Craig if he wouldn't mind uh, stationing himself at the soundboard back there uh, with his finger hovering over the mute button in case I do stumble into error and speak falsehood, that he can cut my mic and if that were to happen, uh, please disregard what it, what it was you heard me just say. But I see that Craig is not there, so he must have thought I was only kidding. <laughs> so, so thank you, Craig. <laughs> There's no mute button over there. That's the worry. Well, this morning I, I would like to uh, share with you my personal vision of worship here at Country Oaks. And I shared this I have shared this vision before and have been sharing it with the elders for the last few months. I believe this may be their vision by now, too. Um, and I'll paraphrase one of the elders who put it this way. We'll boil it down to its essence. You know, by God's grace here each Sunday, we, our, our pastor, our teaching pastor, hits a home run in teaching God's word to us. Amen? And we're exceedingly blessed, incredibly blessed, so, with that in mind, why not hit a home run when it comes to the first 20 minutes of our worship? Why can't we hit a home run there, too? And uh, notice I said the first 20 minutes of our worship. You know, I'm talking about the singing. Um, that's basically our singing time. That's where we lift our voices as one voice to express our love for God the Father and to exalt the name of Jesus. But the fact is, this entire hour and a half is, is worship, everything we do in it. Uh, when we do it with an attitude of worship, is worship. The message, the songs, the offering, the men's moment, 
the baptisms, the baby dedications, the announcements, all our expressions of our worship. Um, and for some of those things, you can, you can sit there and I can sit there and we can be passive and not involved. Um, but that wouldn't be anything that qualifies as worship because as we're going to see, worship requires our active participation. So if you'll allow me, I might this morning slip and, and refer to uh, worship as our, just our singing portion, but that's, that's only for the sake of convenience. So um, that just might happen. But in preparing this morning, uh, you know, a good sermon, they say a well-crafted sermon has three points to it. So I happen to have four this morning for you. And uh, don't worry, I, I started with six, so I have been working towards three. Um, and here they are. This is it. True, authentic worship is glorifying God in his presence. I think we'll see that this morning. True worship can happen wherever God's people are gathered. <clears throat> and the true worshipers are God's redeemed. The church, that's us. And true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. So let's go to our passage, uh, John chapter 4, and I'll lay a little bit of uh, context, a little background for you before we, we get to the, to the main point. Jesus had been traveling with his disciples from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, which was their home country. The shortest, most direct route between those two places was Samaria. And Samaria, to Jews, as you know, was not a desirable neighborhood to be in. Uh, sure, they were probably trying to get through it as quickly as possible, just like when I drive uh, north on the I-15 uh, through that eyesore known as Las Vegas. I figure once I get past that, um, it's all beautiful from there. Well, maybe that Jesus and his disciples were thinking that way. but And they could have avoided Samaria. And to do so, they would have had to travel uh, to the east across the Jordan River into what is today the the nation of Jordan, which was Gentile country, and they could have traveled north and then crossed back to the west, crossed the Jordan into Galilee, and avoided Samaria altogether, um, but they didn't. And Jesus wasn't trying to avoid anything on this day. Um, but, but Jews did look down upon Samaritans as uh, ethnically mixed as racially impure, as unbelievers, ceremonially unclean. The, uh, the ethnic, religious, and racial tolerance that we value as Americans today did not really prevail in those days in the ancient Middle East. Uh, what the Samaritans did believe is they believed in the Torah, which is the law, basically. They, they held up Moses as their prophet. And they, say, they had some vague expectation of a coming uh, messianic prophet of a messiah, probably uh, a successor to Moses. Uh, they did, the Samaritans did disagree with Jews about where God should be worshipped. To, to Samaritans, the, the proper and correct place of worship was at Mount Gerasim. That was their traditional worship center. That's where at least one major temple had once stood. But the Jews, on the other hand, maintained that the correct location to worship God was at Mount Zion. In Jerusalem, uh, as I said, socially, 
Jews and Samaritans avoided one another. Um, but Jesus wasn't trying to avoid anyone today. So he and his disciples arrive at Jacob's well. Um, Jacob's well is located near the tomb of Joseph, which had been dug centuries ago, earlier, by his father Jacob. Uh, the well was a place that people came to daily to, to get their water. They brought their vessels. Usually, though, uh, not in the heat of the day. They came in the cool of the day, like in the morning or in the evening. But Jesus and his disciples were there at about noon, so there really was nobody there. Uh, it was a place that when people did come, it was uh, news was exchanged, gossip was done. Um, People just kind of socialized for a while, like the local water cooler. But um, Jesus and his disciples were alone. In fact, Jesus sent his disciples into town to get food, so Jesus was there by himself. And uh, at that point, the Samaritan woman comes to the well carrying her vessel alone. Now, why was she coming alone at that time? Well, we know it was probably because she was not accepted by her own neighbors, uh, maybe because of her reputation. Maybe she was the object of their gossip. She didn't care to be there when others were there, so she came in the heat of the day where she figured nobody else would be there. Um, and so Jesus immediately initiates a conversation with her. It's, it's Jesus and the woman at the well. He says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, depending on the tone of voice, that could have meant, that could have sounded like a request or, or a command, you know. It is a, an imperative sentence, give me a drink. Uh, and it appears to have startled her because she knew that he was a Jew and he was asking her to give him a drink out of her pagan vessel, which she was going to dip into the water, hand to him. He was going to put, it, put his lips to it and drink from it. Jews would have considered that, that vessel defiled or ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and they would never do that. So instead of just quietly granting Jesus his request uh, for a drink, she spoke her mind. She said, how is it that a, that a Jew like you can ask a drink from a Samaritan woman like me? And at this point, Jesus intentionally let a little bit of personal information slip. He said this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, what did the word, what did the term living water probably mean to the Samaritan woman? Well, it probably meant water that was moving, moving water, flowing water, clean water, cleaner than what would be stored in a well or a cistern, um, fresher and cleaner. But recall back to uh, John chapter 3 with uh, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus where the subject of water came up. Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born of water and from that passage we realize that when what Jesus was talking about when he meant water was living water was is the Holy Spirit. So in other words Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. But the woman probably had no clue what Jesus was talking about. So she must have been wondering, where is this conversation going and what's this man talking about? 
So Jesus went a little deeper. He revealed a bit of his identity, a little bit more. He's, and he went on to say, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again, but everyone who drinks from the water I shall give him will thirst no more. The water I shall give him will become a spring of living water within him, water bubbling up into eternal life. By now she must have been thinking, who is this man and what in the world is he talking about? And then she appears to kind of tease a little information out of him by asking, by asking him for this living water. Uh, so she won't have to keep coming back to the well. And so he, he countered that test of hers with a test of his own, and he brought up the subject of her husband. And she admitted, I have no husband. And he said, that's correct. Uh, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with at the present time is not your husband. At that point, all she could conclude was this man, how does he know this? He must be a prophet. And so she figured, hey, I'm talking to a prophet. And she brought up the subject of worship. One of those major differences in, in theology between Jews and Samaritans. And so the conversation goes, steers a little bit deeper into the subject of religion. Now, when we encounter somebody and meet someone for the first time, we get a little conversation going. Uh, sometimes you, you've heard people say, well, I never bring up, I never talk about politics or religion. Never do that. So so why is that? Why do, we, why do we hear people say that? Why do they want to avoid religion and politics? Um, maybe because to discuss either one of those things with a stranger requires a commitment, perhaps. Uh, what if things get a little awkward, a little uncomfortable? What if we end up talking about something uh, that really matters? <laughs> so uh, let's, let's play it safe. Let's keep our conversation... Uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. And uh, I'm certainly guilty of that. Maybe you feel like you are too. You've done that. Kind of blown a, a perfect opportunity. But, but you know, Jesus was not afraid of confrontation like that. He, Jesus was not afraid of man. He had no fear of man. And he was guiding this conversation in order to engage her further in it. He was about to reveal to her and to us, the most profound fact about worship that we can find in Scripture. So let's pause the narrative for a minute and let's define our term, worship. We're talking about worship this morning. So uh, theologically, when we have a theological question, we one place to go is uh, to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And Grudem says, Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. So let's unpack, unpack this a little bit. It's, it's an activity. It's something we do, right? How about glorifying God? Well, by this I mean that when we worship and we glorify God, we simply make God's glory known, both to ourselves and to others, just like happened this morning right here. Uh, we never really give God glory. Think about that. We use that term, but do we give God glory? Is his glory bestowed upon him by us? No, he's full of glory. We, we simply, when we worship, we simply acknowledge and celebrate 
and magnify his, his glory. How about our voices and our hearts? Well, this is naturally where music and singing comes in. When we employ both of our voices and our hearts together, it naturally comes out as a song. And singing is a heart language. Our hearts are our emotions. Sometimes we sing spontaneously, but usually not. Most often we, we pick a, a well-crafted and meaningful melodic expression, also known as a song, and we make that song our own. And, of course, we have our favorite songs. Usually those are songs that best express what we feel, that fill us with words of truth, I hope, especially songs that come right out of the scriptures. And we, we choose and prefer melodies that resonate with us, songs that are easy to learn, attract us. I call those uh, accessible songs. And so, yeah, that means we all sing. We all sing. And I want to talk more about singing a little bit later, so let's go back to our, our word uh, that we're defining worship. Uh, another place to look. Well, when, a, when you ask a teacher, well, what's this word mean? teacher will tell you to go look it up in the dictionary. First service knew that. I didn't hear that this morning. Well, the New Bible Dictionary says this about worship. The essential concept of worship in both the Old and New Testaments is service. Service. The essential concept of worship in both the Old and New Testaments is service. Have you ever wondered why this event that we hold here every Sunday morning is called a service. Who's doing the serving? Who's being served? I think you know the answer. We come here to serve our God and one another. We call that worship. Uh, So with that in mind, if we use the expression worship service, it's kind of redundant, isn't it? Worship, service. Worship is service. Service is worship kind of a redundant thing to say worship service but we say it anyway and it's okay now where where does a worship service take place well back to our narrative I don't know for sure but I think that after Jesus had exposed the woman's sinful lifestyle to her she felt a little uncomfortable a little bit embarrassed but to her credit I think she follows up instead of just backing off she follows up with this this theological question about the place of worship. Where, where, what was the correct geographical location to worship God? As long as I'm talking to a prophet, let's get this question answered. But you know, that question was based on a false premise. The premise is this, that God is in one place and you've got to go there to find him if you're going to worship him. And that's really, and the Jews believe that too, but that's really not what, what scripture tells us. Uh, in fact, let's, let's take a look at uh, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139, verses 8 through 10. It says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. I love that. So, what does that tell us? God is everywhere. And so, if he's everywhere, if he's omnipresent, 
he can theoretically be worshipped in any place. Any gathering of the saints, any gathering of his people, the church, will be in God's presence because God will be there as he is among us this morning. In Matthew 18.20, you know this verse well, Jesus said, Where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And at that point, corporate worship becomes natural as we worship together. So this room that we're in this morning, we call this room our worship center. We don't really call it a sanctuary. It's not really a sanctuary. Go look that word up later if you like. Uh, To to call it an auditorium wouldn't be bad, except auditorium sort of implies this is where entertainment happens, and sometimes it does. Like a couple of Fridays ago, the talent show we had here, that was pretty entertaining. But on Sunday morning, we're not here for entertainment. We're here for worship. We call this room our worship center. Read the sign outside the door. But think about what that name means. When you walk through the door, a lot of you come through that door, you enter this room we call the worship center, beautiful room do we do we always think about where what what it is we're going to be doing and why we're here do we uh, first of all do we arrive on time uh, do we come with an attitude of worship attitude's a big part or are we waiting to see what happens up here on the stage to decide whether or not we're going to worship today uh, so what if the what if the lighting happens to annoy you Or what if you spot somebody in the room who you have some unfinished business with or who has offended you in some way? Will you still worship? Can you still worship? Um, What about the singing from the stage? What if it's too loud? Can you still worship? How about if it's not loud enough? Will you still be able to worship then? And what if those that are leading the singing and the worship don't seem to be sufficiently prepared. I've certainly had my off mornings over there, trust me. Or what if they're not sufficiently skilled at what they're doing? Can you still worship? What if the music isn't really your taste? What if it doesn't suit you? And I hear contradictory statements about that from time to time, like, uh, why do we sing only old songs? Or why don't we sing more hymns? Um, yeah, the band, the band was too loud. The band wasn't loud enough. Turn it up. Um, what if all those ingredients aren't in place for you the way you like it? Can you still worship? Or do you have to have it just right to get you into the mood? Well, if that's true, then your worship really... Uh, depends on circumstances. But the only circumstance that really should matter in your worship is the presence of God. Which is not to say that your worship leaders shouldn't practice and strive for excellence and choose appropriate songs and rehearse hard and model heartfelt worship. And they do all those things, by the way. But the quality and the integrity of your worship this morning has more to do with you and your focus on the one who is worthy of your worship, I submit to you that worship begins outside those doors, in the parking lot, and maybe even before that. Um, Author and pastor Francis Chan claims that most of us here this morning are consumers. He calls us consumers. That means 
We're here to consume. We're here to be fed, and that's all. We just want to be fed. Activities that involve worship or service or connecting with the other saints or fellowship, they don't matter as much to us. And I hope that's not true of this church body this morning. If you try, think about this. If, if you try, it's pretty easy on a Sunday morning to slip in and out of this room without ever having to talk to anybody, especially if you time it just right. Uh, there's plenty of seating in the back of the room. There's even more expensive seats available right up front here. And I say that if you're coming here in the morning, Sunday morning, just to be fed or to be fed, I say, well done. You've come to the right place. I can promise you're going to be served up generous portions of spiritual calories by our gifted teaching pastor. But I also say that you're really missing something. You're missing the life of the church. You're missing the miraculous hand of God at work among this church family. And these days, I, I truly sense the, the movement of the Holy Spirit here. Uh, I'm talking about, I see it in the sense of optimism among God's people due, the, due, due to the expectation that God is doing something great and miraculous among us. I see the love of brethren who experience the love of Christ daily. I see people that are so filled with so much gratitude to God for so many blessings, for his faithfulness, for his mercy, for his grace, for his care. And so my vision for worship at Country Oaks is that each one of you, including myself, arrives here Sunday morning expecting to encounter our holy God. As if you're saying to yourself, I can't wait to see what God does today. And I know many of you go through a series of hassles just to get here. I know, because Sally and I raised four kids. And we know how much work is involved in just getting the family to church. By the time we did, my attitude wasn't always so great by the time I arrived, and that was a shame. But check out this passage from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, of all places. Here we go. It says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who who do not know they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream come, uh, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3. So what I'm saying is, enter this place, this worship center, humbly, reverently. There's a word, reverent, reverently, reverence. We don't use that much anymore. Enter prayerfully. Expect to worship the God of the unexpected, who can surprise you. He can exceed your expectations. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all came on Sunday mornings full of excitement and wondering what it is today that God has in store for us? Well, who are the worshipers? Reason tells us that uh, an unbeliever can't worship God. He can't worship the God he doesn't know. We we pull that out of our passage here in in, uh, in John 4. Only those who are saved 
and have experienced God's forgiveness and grace and goodness, really even have a desire to give him the glory. It's our privilege to worship. Our worship is an acknowledgement of God's presence and glory in our midst. It's edifying and encouraging to our brothers and sisters. Uh, It's a testimony to any unbelievers who might be present that God is a reality and that he's worthy of our praise and our service and our devotion. I can recall back to just prior to when I put my faith in Christ and I was I was on my college campus one day and uh, came across a, a group of uh, Christians that were people that some of them I knew and they were openly worshiping God on campus. Their voices were, were raised in the joy of their salvation. Uh, their arms were raised almost a, as a salute in my mind uh, to this man Jesus. I could tell something very real was happening right here. These students were full of joy and peace, thanksgiving. I was full of none of those things, uh, but I wanted to be. I wanted whatever it was that they had, and they didn't even know I was there. So they weren't putting on a show for me. They weren't trying to persuade me of anything. They were simply responding to the glory of God, sincere and heartfelt right where they were on a secular college campus. And truthfully, when I see some of you, brothers and sisters, singing your hearts out in the zone of worship, as it were, I'm so encouraged in the same way because you are a witness to me that God is real and that he loves you and that you love him too. So how do we worship? This is really where the rubber meets the road. Well, Jesus told the woman, and by extension tells us, that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, John Piper says this, True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Someone came up to me after first service and says, that's why I'm so emotional. I thought, it, I'm glad it's okay for me to be emotional when we're, when we're worshiping. And I said, man, that means you're, you're worshiping in the spirit. That's cool. That's <laughs> so great. Well, um, well when, when we talk about, when we, we, we take that phrase in spirit and in truth, we, we know what truth is. We're, that's pretty obvious to us. The object of our worship Jesus told us in John 14, 6, that he is the truth. That's why we worship him. And the teaching that accompanies our worship and the lyrics to the songs that we use in our worship need to center around solid biblical truths. And I think Kathy, our worship coordinator, has done an outstanding job combing through our catalog of songs that we use, which I like to call our canon, uh, to make sure that we sing songs that are theologically sound, and sufficiently deep. And that's, that's a work in progress. Some of the fluffy songs that we've sung here before, um, we don't sing anymore. And unfortunately, some of the songs that we uh, that try to pass themselves off as worship songs, uh, I don't think are sufficiently God-centered. If, for example, if the lyrics of a song can be understood as a romantic love song as easily as anything else, or if the message of the song is so vague that it's pretty hard to understand the meaning of it, and that's unclear, then those songs like that don't really fulfill Jesus' mandate to worship in the truth. So let's not be tricked by 
uh, catchy, heart-grabbing melodies, even though they may be attractive, at the expense of sound truth in our worship. Let's set a standard for worship songs that we sing. Now, on the other hand, worshiping in the spirit may be a little bit less obvious, so let's unpack that a little bit. We know God is a spirit. We know he is spirit. We all know that. And we know that we have a body and a spirit. But did, did you know you became the dwelling place of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, the moment you believed? Take a look at uh, Ephesians 1. I love this passage. One, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I love something Pastor Nathan said a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure you remember it. He said, as long as Jesus' disciples walked in his physical presence during those three or so years of his earthly ministry, they did not have the Holy Spirit. They did not really understand him sometimes or what his plan was. And I say, when Jesus was at the well, it's a good thing his disciples had gone to town to buy groceries because I think if Peter had been there, he might have rebuked Jesus for speaking to this woman. Um, That's how clueless the disciples were at times. Uh, But we as believers not only have the revealed word of God in our hands, but we have the Holy Spirit within us to reveal what the word of God means and to clarify it for us. We, We actually know Jesus better than his disciples did. I hadn't really thought of that before, but that was an amazing point. So... It's the presence of God's Holy Spirit within us that the reason is why we get so emotional when we worship or should or should be emotional. Our spirit is united, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And I find that amazing. So do words of profound truth about God and his goodness evoke any feelings in you? If yes, like my friend in first service, it's because you're worshiping him. In the spirit. John Piper also says this in his book, Desiring God. True worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the spirit of God. True worship comes only from the spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the spirit of God. So we worship with our hearts and with our heads in spirit and in truth. This is acceptable and pleasing to God. And it's what Jesus was talking about to the woman at the well. Now, consider how blessed we are here at COBC to come here each Sunday and know that we will be faithfully taught God's word. Our teaching pastors have always valued um, deep theological teaching and sound doctrine. And Pastor Nathan's carrying on that legacy. He challenges us to think theologically and then to apply divine truths to our daily lives. And, and now the extension of Sunday's message uh, into our small groups during the week helped to bring those truths home. And my vision is that, that we, as a body of believers, would be known as worshipers from the heart as well as devoted Bible students because both things are possible. It's not either or. It's both and.
Jesus commands it, and he deserves nothing less from those he has redeemed with his own blood. Amen? Amen. I'm not done yet. Now, what about singing? I told you I would come back to that. Well, in my opinion, one of the great composers that we have alive with us today and a gift to the church is Keith Getty. He's given us, the church, some some fantastic songs to worship with, like one we sang this morning, In Christ Alone. There's also The Power of the Cross and and many others uh, that we sing here. And these are examples of truth-laden worship songs that we've sung many times because they are truth-laden. And he continues to produce new music for the church. Well, Keith Getty wrote a book a couple of years ago simply entitled Sing about what we do in corporate worship. And in it, he made a very simple statement. If you can speak, you can physically sing. You can speak. You can physically speak or physically sing. And I guess that means... He believes that singing is not just a special skill that only certain gifted people have. Think about it. Singing has been a human activity since the dawn of civilization. And only in the past 100 or so years has recorded music even been available to most people. And prior to that time, all music was live music. All families sang together. Songs were passed along by oral tradition. If you wanted music in those days, you made it. And public schools expected all students to learn to sing and play an instrument. Making music was required curriculum. Some of you, like me, are old enough to remember remember those days. But sadly, in my opinion, those days are gone. Those traditions, those music traditions, have been replaced by consumer music. And I'm not knocking it, because I love it too. But we listen to the radio, we've got our MP3, we've got our iTunes, Spotify... I got my old vinyl discs still at home that I like to listen to on my turntable. We have become more consumers of music and less participants. And so people don't cultivate musical skills like they used to. Uh, But I believe that since God has given us the physical apparatus to sing, that he probably wants us to use it. Martin Luther, another hymn writer, said this, Let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures and let his people respond with grateful songs of praise. Now let's check out what God's word has to say about singing. And of course we're going to start with the Psalms, right? So I'm going to serve up some some nourishment for you right now from God's word. And it will bless you. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Shout For joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. And how about in Matthew 26, after the Passover meal, when Jesus and his disciples had sung a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives. I was always fascinated by that 
by that verse. We'll get back to it. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody. Make music to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. Now, do those verses just simply suggest to you that we might want to sing if we're in the mood? That it's an optional activity? Is that to be understood by the church is, is something that only certain people who happen to be gifted as singers can do. I don't read it that way. I see that these verses as commands for us to sing. We're commanded to sing. And to not sing in worship is against God's command. It's not authentic worship. Um, another composer alive today whose music we've sung, Bob Coughlin, Songwriter, he's a director of worship for Sovereign Grace Ministries, and he wrote a book uh, that I've read twice now. It's called Worship Matters. And, and he says the following, There's no better place to begin a history of congregational song than in the early church. Of course, the New Testament doesn't offer much information on the topic. What did worship sound like in the first century? How long did it last? Who were the composers? No one knows. Still, Two things are certain. God has excellent reasons for withholding such specifics, and there's much we can learn from what he has shown us. Um, and as I planned this message for you this morning, I wanted to provide a clear example or a model of New Testament worship to impress you with and say, there it is. That's what we should be doing, but it's not there. And I wondered... Why, why has God not, God not provided, say, in Paul's letters to the churches, a, a clear model of exactly what, what a worship service should look like? Is, is it because uh, the subject of worship was not really a big deal to Paul? Or maybe it, maybe it just wasn't an issue in the churches of Asia Minor at the time. Or maybe God doesn't really care that much about it and how we do it. Well, I doubt all of those things. I really do. Uh, here's my thought. If, if such a passage did exist in the New Testament for us, we would probably abuse it. Because as sinners, we're really legalists at heart. And legalism in the church can, can rear its head in, in many forms. Someone would probably take that hypothetical passage and make it into a rule. And say, worship... You should worship exactly like this. And if you don't, you are a false worshiper or an inferior worshiper. I don't think God wants worship to be legalistic. Rather, he prefers corporate worship to be driven by the love of God and the love of the saints in deference to one another. For example, we at Country Oaks are a multi-generational multi congregation. And I love that. I think that's right. When I hear about churches who separate the congregation into groups character, characterized by their musical tastes and preferences, I, I don't get that. I mean, really, you think dividing the body of Christ over musical flavors is honoring to God? Because it doesn't make sense to me. 
at COBC, we, we strive for balance in our worship set. Uh, out of four songs, there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to sing four songs, but there's nothing that forbids it either, so it's just what we do here. Uh, but we like to kick it off with some adrenaline, which I know isn't always easy if you're not a morning person. And then somewhere in the mix, we like to provide a, a hymn or a, or a hymn-like song. We look for songs that are accessible, uh, both in melody and with the lyrics. We look for solid lyrics. And then ideally, we end with a song that's prayerful and addressed to God in the second person. At least this is how our worship leaders strive to bless the whole congregation during the song set. So, what do we know about New Testament worship? Oh, once again, I'd like to quote Bob Coughlin. He said, The singing of the early church was scriptural. The hymn that Jesus and the disciples sang before going out to the Mount of Olives was most likely from the Hallel section of the Psalter, Psalms 115 to 118, typically sung after the Passover meal. Paul encouraged believers in Corinth, Colossae, and Ephesus to sing psalms. The lyrical songs on the lips of Simeon, Anna, Mary, and others had clear Old Testament themes running through them. A new age had dawned in the coming of the Messiah, but a strong link to the eternal truths of Jewish scriptures remained. So, I'd like to share a few highlights from that section called the Hillel, Psalms 115 and 118. Think of these as lyrics that possibly Jesus and his disciples were singing after the Lord's Supper, after the Passover meal. These words will bless you. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to the na- but your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Heartfelt, truthful, God-centered worship. So what are we seeing here? Well, true worship is glorifying God in his presence. God's never worshipped from a remote location. He's here, and he's among us when we worship. And true worship can happen wherever God's people are gathered. Right here this morning, wherever and whenever. We we set aside the first day of the week to worship God as the body of Christ. The true worshipers are God's redeemed. The church, that's us. Any other kind of worship is counterfeit worship. The true worship... The true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. And as believers, we worship our Lord with both our hearts and with our minds. I'd like to say before I finish that 
that we as worshipers here at Country Oaks have been greatly blessed by Kathy Kelly's ministry these past five or five years or so. And she's worked mostly behind the scenes to ensure that the songs we sing each week are worshipful and solid and that musicians are in place every Sunday and that they're equipped to lead us in song, not to mention leading and preparing wonderful worship choirs for us on Easter and Christmas. Got one coming up in a couple of weeks. I heard them. They sound great already. I've worked with Kathy uh, on various projects over the last 15 years at least, and I'll say most of what I know about using my voice, I've learned from Kathy. And now she and her husband, John, are are beginning a new adventure to uh, Tucson, Arizona. And I love adventures, but I'm going to miss her, and I think so will the many students that have taken voice lessons and piano lessons from her. She's done a fantastic job for us. She's not here this morning, but when you see her, be sure to say thanks. We're going to miss her after Easter. Um, Thank you, Kathy. I'm going to ask you to please, as we conclude, please stand with me. We're going to pray. We're going to put into practice some of what we learned this morning about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, it's our privilege to worship you. You are worthy of our praise and more. Help us to worship you meaningfully with grateful hearts, with voices of praise in spirit and in truth. Amen.